0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is ReSound.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the solid gold sound of a million-dollar weekend.
0: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and various oral oddities we find on the internet, the airwaves, or just hanging around our inbox. We collect and curate, then repackage and replay it for you on ReSound.
2: Here's an
3: amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act.
0: There's something about a spectacle we can't resist. Is there anything better than a big show? I mean, a really big show? I'm talking about Las Vegas, Broadway, the Big Top, the Olympics, five-hour opera, a two-week bike race, Saturday Night Live, the Rockettes... This week on Resound, we're getting up close and going backstage to find the show within the show and find we do. And now, drum roll please. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a feat of unparalleled virtuosity you're sure to enjoy, a dazzling extravaganza beyond your wildest imagination. Resound. Manhattan has plenty of icons. The Empire State Building, the Statue of Liberty, the Broadway Marquee. But come December, there's really only one show in town, the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, featuring fireworks, a flying Santa, an indoor snowfall, and of course, the world-famous Rockettes. And if you're even thinking about going to see it, you gotta get your tickets now. And while you may be impressed with the onstage spectacular, wait till you hear what happens backstage. Producer Dean Olsher spent a day with wardrobe assistant Celeste Canfield.
4: It has been going on for more than 70 years, drawing people from all over the country and even the world. Between November 4th and the 2nd of January, more than a million people will have walked through the doors of Radio City Music Hall into the preposterously grand Art Deco theater that holds 5,800 people at a time to see the Rockettes and the Christmas Spectacular. Cynicism aside, really, when you drop the attitude, you have to admit the whole thing. The rockets, the live animals, Santa flying through the air, the precision, and the showbiz that doesn't stop for 90 minutes. It is just dazzling. How do they do it? Well, let me show you. On this particular Tuesday, the first show of the day started at 11 in the morning. Preparations for that show began hours earlier.
5: By the end of the day, All the costumes that are put on in this room are going to end up in another place. And that means that by the end of the show, nearly every costume is where it doesn't belong for the next show. Okay, who took my rack?
4: Meet uh Celeste Canfield, wardrobe assistant for the Christmas Spectacular. She is a veteran of the theater world. She's toured the globe with rock groups and ballets and worked in casinos. More than 30 years ago, she got her first job in the business. Great Adventure Amusement Park was opening in New Jersey, and she had to dress, along with the human performers, the horses and the camels, and she had no washing machines at her disposal. And although the Christmas Spectacular is a world apart, in this one particular way, it's as if she's come full circle. The room where she dresses Rockettes is next to another that's covered in hay. He
5: has a mind of his own.
4: Ted, you are a real drooly camel there.
5: When I came here 10 years ago, I came through with Diana Ross a couple of times. Mm -hmm. They offered me the Christmas show job. The same day, I got a call from Meatloaf to do eight months on tour with him. (laughs) And I was like, oh, God, eight months with Meatloaf, two months of Christmas. I'm a vegetarian. I'll do Christmas. Stage right, booth.
4: Celeste lives on the Jersey Shore. It's a 75-minute drive to Midtown when there's no traffic. And when she's working at Radio City, she gets up at 5 a.m. For nine weeks out of the year, she doesn't see daylight. One reason she gets up before the sun is to avoid the traffic. But she has an ulterior motive, too. When she gets into the city, she lodges herself at the Olympic Diner on 8th Avenue with her laptop to keep her writing practice alive. Screenplays in particular.
5: I usually get a couple of good scenes done in the morning that early.
4: Yeah, that's before work and with any spare moments on the job at Radio City.
5: I have some books over here, and one is um, Carl Jung, and another one's called Inner Work, and that's about um, Jungian dream five work. Seven. Please call the stage yeah. and let us know you're here. Maya, 47365. Mm-hmm. And those are the announcements that happen whenever you are trying to think. <laughs> um, normally, I would have one of those books in my pocket, and After I preset a costume, I will actually pull out the book, read a paragraph, and while I'm going through my next few moves, I'm actually thinking about what I just read.
4: So you can read a book a paragraph at a time?
5: Yeah. I mean, because that's what I'm forced to do here. (laughs) Yeah. Stage right. Yes, they are, except for the one pair that was having a zipper fixed. Okay, we'll pass the word. Bye. Alright, the wooden soldier pants are going to go in now. They're in the, the call
4: came from seven floors up. Pants for the next show were being swapped out, sent to the dry cleaners, and so Celeste restocked her racks with new pants, but also discovered in the process that she was missing a couple. She
5: brought two pair up, but I don't see the other two pair. We're gonna go downstairs okay.
0: and find them. Hold that out, there.
4: Now, remember, yeah. Celeste is only one of the dressers.
5: We all really depend on each other. One missing pair of shoes, if someone doesn't notice. Disaster. Disaster.
4: Wardrobe team is made up of 28 people, which sounds like a lot.
5: But with the size of the cast and the size of the building, you will see that everybody is employed almost at every minute.
4: How many costume changes does a Rocket go through in the course of a show?
5: Each girl changes 10 times, starting in her street clothes until the end of the show. So on a six-show day, that's changing your clothes
4: top to bottom 60 times. And that's just the 36 Rockettes. It doesn't count the whole rest of the ensemble. Okay,
5: we're missing a pair of model shoes.
4: Just think, there are days in the season when this team puts on six shows. Today, only three, which seems like a cakewalk by comparison. Now, in a matter of moments, all hell is about to break loose, but you would never know it. This seems just too relaxed. The show starts in two minutes, and you're sitting here looking at a Pottery Barn catalog? You should be frantic.
5: (laughs) No, um, I I always read Kafka backstage, because for me, it's kind of like you're repeating the same 90 minutes of your life over and over and not really getting anywhere, and there are these quiet lulls, and then there's that scream
4: moment. Two minutes later, 11 a.m., on the dot, and it's showtime.
5: like you just take aim, you fire the bullet, and nobody can stop till it hits the target, which is nativity, the last
4: number. And that's exactly what's about to happen over the next 90 minutes. Non-stop movement, precision coordination, all super rehearsed. And I'm not talking about the Rockettes, I'm talking about the costumers backstage.
1: New York's favorite holiday tradition, please welcome the world-famous Radio City Rocket!
4: All right, so here come the men. Two men in suits, one guy who's wearing street clothes. It has the frantic energy of the dressing room at Filene's basement, and everyone in hot pursuit of the next bargain. Now, if this were a typical Broadway theater, everybody here would be really, really quiet, whispering. But there's something about the way this hall was built, plus the specially constructed curtains and the amplified sound from the show. It's really loud back here. Celeste says it's like being in a bar where you have to yell to be heard. Everyone, including stage manager Nicola Taylor, is speaking at full voice and sometimes even louder. So, in
0: just a second, we're going to move all the elevators up, down, bells coming in, pieces flying in and out. It's great fun. Any second. Electric's 98 for
6: elevators 1 and 3 to meet 2 at 4 feet, warning my cues 9 and 10, warning for the turntable right,
4: limit and stop. Nicola Taylor is one of four stage managers, holding a pencil like a baton and conducting like a maestro while the show's going on. Go. After all, many of the cues she gives are coordinated with the music, but given what she's responsible for, it's more apt to compare her to an air traffic controller. Go, 101.
0: coming in, warning
4: Fly Q10. Just think for a second about those troughs that hang overhead that hold 400 pounds of snow that falls onto the stage.
0: Go, Fly 10, Electrics 104,
4: go. It really is something else to stand on the wings at Radio City Music Hall, but I have to tell you, it is something else altogether different to be on the stage. Okay, Celeste has her teddy bear costume. We are on stage be careful not to step on cables. This is the cool part. That's right, at one point in the show, Celeste a does a costume change behind a flat, on stage while the show is going on.
5: Checking out the shoes, you all tucked yeah. in down there. Mm-hmm. Let me see your back. The tails sticking out. Thank me. Have a lovely dance.
4: Next, we race back to the wings to meet up with the Rockettes, dressed now in wooden soldier costumes oh, really? with tall black hats. On,
5: and we're going to check and make sure they have great big white blooms on top. Perfect. You, You're gorgeous. Perfect. Anybody else want a feather check?
4: Then, off stage. All right, quickly. get the Santa this costumes. Uh oh.
5: Dropping off all the body parts that I just picked up.
4: It's a train of costume racks. There we go. Pulled into the wings. One rack, two racks, three racks, four racks, five racks. This is just as precision as the rockets themselves.
5: They're going too fast.
4: Ready for the next change.
5: Out on stage, you can see the wooden soldiers are doing their number. There's 36 of them out there doing the precision number. And as soon as you're done, You're going to come running off and do a precision change right here.
4: It is the quickest change of the show. All the wooden soldiers become Santas in under a minute. The performance
5: is actually the changing of the clothing.
4: The Santas were set, so Celeste headed downstairs to the sub-basement to change the skaters. There is no elevator to the sub-basement. She must take the stairwell. It is the one thing that over the course of the day will break her seemingly unbreakable cheer. I really
6: hate those stairs.
4: Yeah. She will admit more than once today. That she is getting too old for stairs. As she waits for the stage covered in fake ice to lower the skaters down for their costume change. This is the one moment during the show that Celeste has a chance to read. Oh. She can pull out whatever book she's got going at the time and get a paragraph in, but not for long. Okay, here they come. They're already unzipping.
5: They can't wait to get out of them. Water water, cold water. Skaters
4: Benji and Naomi, having switched outfits from red to white, were raised back okay, up by we'll elevator. See you
5: next change.
4: While Celeste went back up to her next task to finalize the reindeer costumes.
5: Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. I have all my boots.
4: Rockets streamed in.
5: Yeah.
4: And only minutes later, Celeste was back downstairs in the sub-basement once again, following the Rockets, who were getting ready to go on as Santa's reindeer.
5: And these girls can never sneak up on me And
4: then back up to stage level. Any chance of an elevator this time?
5: I don't think they're coming, so we're going to walk up. All
4: right. There is still one more scene to go, the Nativity. It's where Celeste indulges the dancers a little. What is this? You've just uncovered a stash of chocolate bars.
5: (laughs) Well, we buy chocolate for the girls. It gives them that little energy lift they like to have during the day. Do
4: they ever eat them?
5: Oh, yeah. Really? A lot of them get into the Nativity costume and get ready to go out there and worship, and they'll take a little Kit Kat with them.
4: And with that, the end of the show. All right. Now, on Broadway, this would be it for a single night, but at Radio City, this is the first of three shows. And remember, for the nine-week run of the Christmas Spectacular, this team may do the same show two, three, four, five, or yes, even six times in one day. There is an hour before the second show. Just enough time to sit on the floor.
5: Not really a chair (laughs) person.
4: Do a little mending.
5: The lining just ripped. Eat a banana. Feeling a little peckish.
4: Put the costumes back in place.
5: Okay, so now we're going to go around the room.
4: And then... Do the whole show over again. Change the New Yorkers. Here they are. Dress the ballerina bears. Okay,
5: I'm laying out this costume.
4: Check the feathers on the hats of the wooden soldiers.
5: Hey, I check your
4: face? Roll out the Santa costumes.
5: Somebody in the end is a little slow.
4: Turn wooden soldiers into Santas. I'm
5: taking the boots, opening the Velcro.
4: Change the skaters from red to white. Zip that. Put big red spots on the cheeks of the ragdolls.
5: That they stick on with tape. Check the
4: reindeer's antlers and bells. Yeah. Prepare for the nativity with the all-important Kit Kats.
5: Jesus has just been born for the second time today, and it'll happen again a few hours from now, and Mary gets pretty tired.
4: And then, after the second show...
5: This is where I start daydreaming.
4: Do a third.
5: I'm gonna get out of the way because
7: the... There comes the bike.
4: Are through, their bicycles the are pandas on the bikes. Go pandas, bears on bikes. Go pandas. go
7: pandas, get your groove on, go pandas. Okay, everybody gets go a little panda. delirious as the day wears on. Uh-huh.
4: Indeed. In fact, some of the dancers started to get down, like, punching.
8: Wait, I hear my audience calling. <laughs> I'm coming, darling.
5: When the day wears on, when you're doing multiple shows, you've got to really check because it's easy to think you preset something that you did the last show.
4: This is when the accidents can happen.
5: Um, accidents can always happen.
4: And sure enough, only a few minutes later... Well, theater people are awfully superstitious, but you have to ask, did Celeste cause an accident to happen by saying what
8: she did? Okay, so my beard got stuck on Santa's belly. That was hilarious. Oh, how did what exactly happened? Salvation Army Santa beard came off of my head and was stuck on Santa's belt in the opening number.
2: No. So he ripped it off his face. When they hugged, shut up.
9: Nice.
4: Can't stand around too long chatting, though. Got to run down and change the skaters. Can it really be the third time of the day? Or is this only the second? Your mind gets addled, but pretty soon you just end up going through the motions, relying on physical memory and your muscles. There is a weird kind of deja vu quality to this.
5: Oh yeah, wait till you do it five or six times. That's, that's when it becomes something else. Um, see, this would be the moment where I would sit here and pull out my book and read a paragraph as quickly as I could.
4: And before Kafka, what was that?
5: Um, I was rereading Moby Dick because it had been a while.
4: But you would read it one paragraph at a time.
5: Well, it's really all the time you get.
4: <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that. The thought of having to keep track of all this stuff and at the same time be able to immerse yourself into you know, mid-19th century wailing for a paragraph blows my mind.
5: Well, I've toured most of my life that's kind of like being on a whale ship. They kill a whale, I put up a show.
4: <laughs> Whatever it takes to keep you going. For some, it's great books. Others, chocolate.
6: Oh, can I have one of those?
4: Why do you get them hopped up on sugar at the moment when they're supposed to be chilling out?
5: They like it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> they need it for the hike. I don't cares, judge, don't <laughs> I just
5: provide... This is the christmas show you know and a lot of it is celebrating the hype and the fun of christmas and then the end you're celebrating why it's really there and i'm a buddhist but i really get into it <laughs> i was brought up catholic
4: how many sheep
5: oh yeah the sheep the thing i noticed about the sheep is no matter where they stand them they always turn so they're behind or to the audience i don't know why that is but it happens every single time
4: turns out that some particularly physically affectionate cast members, the shepherds on stage, can't resist giving deep tissue massages to the animals while the show is going on. So naturally, the sheep started presenting themselves for that. Why would they want to look out at the audience when they can get a massage?
5: Is that it? I, did. I had no idea. I just knew every time I looked out there. So. And you see everybody's coming off now.
4: At the end of the show, the third okay. of the day. A relatively moderate day as things go around here, save for the mishap with Santa's beard. It was a day backstage with the Rockettes, like any other. There are people who enjoy the limelight, and then there are people who are happiest making others look their best in the limelight. Celeste Canfield is one of those people.
5: Good night, love. I love you, too. Bye.
4: (laughs) If she had it her way, though, there would come a time when she does make her debut on this stage. The idea came to her on a particularly busy day.
5: Somewhere around the fifth or sixth show, I was thinking, I had been to a funeral and we were talking about what to do with our ashes. I thought, why not put me in the trough, the snow trough, which contains the snow, and I can snow on the Radio City stage and make my debut. And I can do it six times on a six-show day. Every time they just sweep me up and put me back and I'll snow a little more, and you know, till there's nothing left. They'll have to remove the teeth, though, because I don't want some elf with a molar in his head.
4: Don't get the wrong idea, Celeste isn't really serious. This is just her writer's imagination at play. But in a way, it's kind of too bad that no one would ever grant this last wish of hers because it would be the perfect way to integrate her two lives.
0: Backstage with the Rockettes by Dean Olsher and Emily Boutine for The Next Big Thing. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. Tell us what you think about our big show. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org.
3: We have a big show for you tonight.
0: Today we're talking about big shows, really big shows. Now opera, by its very nature, is synonymous with extravaganza. The huge voices, the sweeping music, the epic storylines, the performances, the last hours. The longest, in fact, is 18 hours, Wagner's Ring Cycle which by comparison makes Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, a five-hour opera, go by in a flash. But if the scant five-hour length isn't enough to entice you, its very colorful history might. WNYC's Amy O'Leary brings us the Tristan Mysteries.
2: I recently called Meg Kinney, a marketing consultant in Los Angeles, to talk about opera. Yeah, hi. Hi, how are you? Meg thinks what most people in this country probably think of
6: opera, and she's
2: trying really hard to be polite about it.
6: After a while, I find myself needing something more because I just have a limited appreciation for the art form. Yeah. And so, uh, so... Wait,
2: wait, wait. I want to stop here. Do you think uh, opera is boring? No! I, but,
6: I, okay, what I will say is I have given ballet many tries... And I have found ballet to not hold my interest.
1: And I suppose, yes, I cast
6: opera into a similar <laughs> bucket as ballet. <laughs> Between you and I, it, I, I get so sleepy. It, I, I get really relaxed and really sleepy. Because you always see opera scenes in movies, you know, like Pretty Woman or something. <laughs> You go, and she loves it, and she's crying. And even when I see scenes of opera depicted in film like that, I still walk away going, Anna, get it.
2: Still, she's going to give it a shot. Meg just bought her first pair of opera tickets to see Tristan und Isolde. I'm Amy O'Leary, and this is the Tristan Mysteries, our special series on the opera, which, I'm sorry to say, Meg, is nothing like that opera in Pretty Woman. It has almost no plot, No catchy solos, and it lasts nearly five hours. So Meg Kinney, I'm telling you now, give up.
10: I mean, if you're feeling like you're zoning out or falling asleep or are losing track of parts of the opera or are not exactly paying careful attention, you are not alone.
2: No, lots of people fall asleep, including Danny Felsenfeld, a composer.
10: The problem that people have with opera is they feel like if they're falling asleep, they might be a philistine. Or if they're not exactly constantly enthralled, or if they're, you know, something jars them slightly awake, um, that they might be dumb because they're not able to pay attention. And I'm telling you, I fall asleep at the opera all the time and I don't know anybody who doesn't.
1: My name is Ben Hepner. Ben
8: Heppner. The astonishing, terrifying, <laughs> wow. gorgeous Ben, ben Heppner, Heppner. Who's so
4: great. Who I worship. He's an artist, not a tenor.
2: And Ben Heppner is a star. He's one of a handful of people in the world that can physically sing the role of Tristan. His daughter's fallen asleep twice at his performances. And Ben Heppner himself, whose job title is literally heroic tenor, has a confession to make.
1: It was act three. And um, uh, it wasn't the first, first performance. It probably was getting towards the fourth or fifth, I would think. And I was really, really tired and I was on the, uh, this chaise on, on my you know, death pallet. But I probably fell asleep for about 30 seconds. And um, all of a sudden, I became conscious of this musical motif. And I thought, oh my stars, I've missed my entrance. And I sat bolt upright, which is what you're not supposed to do when you're unconscious, and turned and looked at the prompt, And um, um, she was a little surprised, to say the least. But she immediately put her hand up so that I understood, you're not supposed to be singing. And then she looks me in the eye and cues me. You know, whew, that was close.
2: So if even Ben Hepner can fall asleep during Tristan, what's going on?
8: The wonderful thing about Wagner in general, Tristan uh, specifically, is that it is so slow that... You know, the, I guess the bad version would be like watching paint dry.
2: Mark Morris, the choreographer.
8: But the good version would be watching a, a bud open that it's so slow that you think nothing's happening. And of course, something's happening all the time. You're, you're changing all the time.
10: There are parts of Tristan where you get lulled. But I think the lulling is very important. I think the hypnotic nature of what's going on is part of what draws you into the story.
2: And the hypnotic nature of Tristan has always been a big part of the opera's mystery.
11: When this opera was first performed, some critics uh, said that there were people who could not stop crying all night after they'd seen it. They would simply sit and cry until eventually they fell asleep.
2: John Forrest, head of anthropology at SUNY Purchase College, says that falling asleep during the opera can make you more vulnerable to experiencing strong emotions.
11: The process is is one of altered states of consciousness, and that's something I think is really important about lengthy performances, is that it takes a time not only to get wrapped up into the story and in the music, but to allow the performance itself to take over your consciousness. So for example, in Java, they have uh, what's called the kulit, which is a shadow play. This play typically lasts eight hours, and you might sleep in certain points that you don't like. and. Uh, Then you wake up at other times, you may go off and get something to eat. But the point is that because it lasts so long, you get completely wrapped into this performance. And I think that Wagner's the same way.
2: And whether it's the length of the opera, or the music itself, or some combination of both, no one knows how Tristan can work you over more intimately than this woman. Okay, so let's just say I'm a singer. Who, because of what she's about to confess, asks that I not reveal
6: her name. About seven years ago, I attended a concert at Carnegie Hall, and on the program was Trisana Zolda, and what I was surprised is, as the music started, um, it was like the music was going through me. I mean, everything was was vibrating, like the chair, the the hall, the instruments around me, my whole body was was filled with the music and as it led up to a climax like, oh my god I'm about to have an orgasm in Carnegie Hall like surrounded by people I, what the hell is going on I just kept my eyes closed, and I was in my own little heaven right there in seat 26 a wherever it was. Why do you think this music did this to you? A lot of people understand sports and are very connected to the excitement of a sport. And at the last moment, when your team is about to score that winning field goal and you're literally levitating out of your seat because you're so in it. I'd say that that's how music can make you feel if you open yourself to it.
2: So, Meg Kinney, the marketing consultant who gets so sleepy, don't worry so much.
8: If you're going to Tristan und Isolde for the first time don't expect not to fall asleep. It's perfectly fine. It's part of it. Then when you wake up, you'll feel just like the characters do, tormented and uh, turbulent and almost satisfied.
2: This is the Tristan Mysteries. I'm Amy O'Leary. And while the opera is partly about sex, it's also about death. And it makes sense in a way that the reactions to it have been more than just sexual. Around the opera's premiere in 1865, Tristan gained kind of a dark reputation.
12: The first tenor to, to perform Tristan, Schnorr von Karlsfeld, a great artist, uh, died delirious days after. Previous to that, there was a failed attempt to premiere Tristan, and the tenor died insane. In my own lifetime, I remember the summer that Josef Kahlberg had a heart attack in Munich, conducting Tristan II, he died.
2: <laughs> Joe Horowitz is the kind of guy who can answer a lot of questions about classical music. But when we went to Coney Island and I asked him questions about beach erosion, he wasn't very much help.
12: I, I can't answer this question.
2: From that picture, was it, was it built out on a pier? or?
12: It wasn't on a pier, but out into the water on a strip of land, is there anything like that around here? I don't know.
2: I brought Joe to the beach, because somewhere, out there, wherever that big strip of land was that we can't find...
12: But here at Coney Island, there were Wagner concerts.
2: In 1886, to be precise. About when that picture we were looking at on the front of Joe's book, Wagner Nights, was taken. It shows a strip of land that just doesn't exist anymore a big luxury hotel, and a hundred tiny figures in top hats and parasols walking towards this 3,000-seat outdoor concert hall. And it was such a weird idea even back then. The big attractions at the beach were flashier, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show had just come through, and John Philip Sousa was the really big musical draw on the beach. To play Wagner at Coney Island would be a little like staging a Salman Rushdie reading at spring break
5: in Cancun.
12: These concerts, the story gets more and more incredible where the creation of the Zeidel Society, which was a women's organization based in Brooklyn.
2: A group of 200 women in corsets who would stop at nothing to hear Wagner performed by his own protege, the dashing young conductor Anton Zeidel.
12: Anton Zeidel was the high priest of Wagnerism in America.
2: Zeidel was an enigma, charming, well-dressed, mysterious. One newspaper writer wrote, perhaps Herr Seidel knows that he's adored, that hundreds of adoring eyes from hundreds of pretty faces are then bent upon him.
12: We know that when Seidel's funeral took place in the Metropolitan Opera, downstairs the women outnumbered the men, something like 20 to 1, and they clasped hands in order to force their way into the hall when there were no more seats. We know that they applauded frantically. When Tristan was premiered, we know at performances of Tristan, they stood on their chairs and screamed their delight for what seemed hours. That's a quote from the musical Courier.
2: In the face of the initial ridicule for the beach concerts, the women of the Zidal Society kicked into action. They raised money, sold tickets, and even organized special women-only train cars to the beach so they could come without escorts. They silenced loud talkers. They pinned the letter S on their dresses. Maybe it was just as conducting, but maybe there was something more.
12: And the more you think about this, the more sense it makes. Their husbands are away making money. They lack professional opportunities. And they also lack, I would say, adequate bedroom opportunities. So Wagner was quite obviously a means of emotional release. And uh, it, it had an impact unimaginable today, especially for these inhibited and repressed Gilded Age housewives to be present at the orgasm, the dying orgasm of Isolde. It was just... It was a life-changing experience for them. Mm
2: -hmm. On August 23rd, 1894, the audience demanded an encore of every single number on the program. And on most Wagner nights, the program ended with the Prelude and Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde.
12: You can't follow the Liebestod with anything else. It's, there's nowhere else to place it on a program.
2: It just kills anything that would come after it?
12: Yeah. It's hard to talk about Seidel without sounding hyperbolic. But his stock in trade was the climax. No other conductor could calibrate a climax like Anton Seidel. That was also Wagner's stock and trade. And what's his most famous climax? Well, I would say it's that orgasmic climax in the Liebestod. So nobody wanted to hear anything after the Liebestod conducted by Anton Seidel. You just got up and walked out.
2: And that's what they did for eight years, define all boardwalk and amusement park logic, until October 12, 1896, when Zeidel's Music Hall, as they'd come to call it, was wiped out by a tidal wave.
0: WNYC's The Tristan Mysteries, by Amy O'Leary and Limor Tomer, with production help from Laura Bellows, and special thanks to Andy Laster. Now, not everyone has five hours to spend in a theater listening to Wagner, and for those who don't, radio producer Ed Herman has taken the first act of Tristan and Isolde and condensed it down to three minutes. Here we go.
9: Here's the story.
13: Tristan is taking Isolde aboard a ship to be married Isolde to his uncle. She sends for Tristan and tells her mates. Isolde, a, a wounded, wounded stranger, back Tom now, only to realize that she still kills Tristan. When they look moral. into each other's eyes, she, she thinks, thinks it's, all it's all they drink, but are then made a Then, thinking they're about to die, declare their love for each other. As the ship lands, King Mark awaits his bride. Ready? Here we go. Act 1.
0: Hours of Wagner, boiled down to three minutes. Tristan and Isolde, by Ed Herman, from his Wake Up and Hear the Roses podcast.
3: Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest spectacle. Incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty
0: You're listening to Resound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxai, and today we're talking about big shows. In our country, one of the biggest shows around is a constitutionally mandated annual spectacle starring one of the biggest actors around, the president of the United States. Each year, he or she is required to give a State of the Union address to Congress. Talk, 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 clap, 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 stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. In 2004, producer Brendan Greeley decided to do a brief analysis of the address to see what kind of sentiment got the most applause. Here is What Brought Down the House.
14: Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Okay, so that doesn't really count because you're supposed to clap.
3: The President of the United States.
14: And here again, it's rude if you don't clap. So that's four minutes and 33 seconds total of introductory applause.
9: They are making America more secure.
14: 23 seconds of applause.
9: The tax relief you passed is working. 22. The state of our union is confident And strong.
14: Okay, 20. But if you don't clap when he says this, you're just a bad American.
9: This danger will be defeated. 21. Ended the rule of Saddam Hussein and the people of Iraq are free. 23. Was found in a hole and now sits in a prison cell. 20. But the United States of America will never be intimidated by thugs and assassins.
14: 21.
9: Anand Pachachi. Sir, America stands with you and the Iraqi people as you build a free... And peaceful nation. Thirty-three. And no one can now doubt the word of America.
14: No, they can't. Twenty seconds.
9: America's proud of you, and my administration and this Congress will give you the resources you need to fight and win the war on terror. Forty-one. And war is what they got.
14: Twenty-three. But this is a great line.
9: And war is what they got. And it's true. The world without Saddam Hussein's regime is a better and safer place.
14: 25 seconds says yes.
9: America will never seek a permission slip to defend the security of our country. 25. That's not asking too much. That was a cough. Here, listen. That's not asking too much. One cough. And the No Child Left Behind Act is opening the door of opportunity to all of America's children.
14: 23 seconds of applause for children.
9: For the sake of job growth, the tax cuts you passed should be permanent.
14: 24 seconds for permanent tax cuts.
9: Abstinence for young people is the only certain way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases.
14: 24 seconds for abstinence.
9: Ashley Pearson believes in you.
14: That's my favorite line in the speech and it only got 21 seconds.
9: Study hard in school. Listen to your mom or dad. Help someone in need. And when you and your friends see a man or woman in uniform, say thank you.
14: 26 more seconds for Ashley.
9: May God continue to bless America.
14: A minute and 55 seconds for God. But that's kind of a cheap shot because um, you have to mention God at the end. Everybody does it. I would have done it.
0: What Brought Down the House? An Annotated Guide to the 2004 State of the Union Address by independent producer Brendan Greeley. Now, I'm going to let you in on a well-kept secret. One of the hottest tickets to one of the longest-running shows in New York is absolutely free. All you have to do is wait online. Lewis Klein's been waiting online to see Saturday Night Live since the show was popular enough to merit a line. He's seen 539 out of 622 shows, including the very first. And over the years, he's become pretty famous and even a little infamous as the mayor of the Saturday Night Live ticket line. Weekend America's Sean Cole spent the night on the sidewalk with Saturday Night Klein.
13: Lewis Klein is 59. He has cerebral palsy and a bum knee. His wife, Jamie, who's half his age, was born without ears and uses a special headset to hear. So they don't like to sit out in the rain too much. And it's raining, but they're there anyway, about 20 feet from the neon marquee that says, Rainbow Room, Observation Deck, NBC Studios. The one you see in the credits to Saturday Night Live. Lewis? Oh, yes. Hey, how are you? Okay, Jamie? Are you made it. Lewis sits on his walker, which doubles as a stool. Jamie's got a comfy, fold-out chair. They're second and third in line behind a kid named Danny, who's been there since noon. It's 2 o'clock now.
3: We, we got another 17 hours to talk about it. <laughs> Something like that. Talking is kind yeah, of what
13: Louis so. does best. Jamie mostly keeps to herself, chiming yeah, in yeah, now and I then with a weather it. report.
3: Now it says the last of the showers is at 9 p.m.
13: But oh, Louis talks enough wrong. for the both of them about their relationship, about his various jobs, bookkeeper, fuller brush man, but mainly about his purpose here. He's not just a veteran of the line. He's really the keeper of the line, enforcer of the line rules. Common
3: sense rules, so to
13: speak. Yes,
3: you can go get some food, you can go to the bathroom if you have to, and whatever the case may be, but you have to come back. We've had people, okay, I'm going to the Broadway show, I'll be back at 11 o'clock. You can't do that.
13: That's jumping, he says, the cardinal sin of the standby line. And if you do jump the line, Lewis will tell the person who hands out the tickets in the morning not to give you one. And she won't. Because Lewis has been doing this longer than anybody. And if you sit anywhere long enough, people start listening to you. Lewis was always in one studio audience or other. He used to go to game shows a lot, What's My Line, To Tell the Truth.
9: NBC, Saturday Night!
13: And the night that Saturday Night Live launched, October 11th, 1975. Starring George Carlin! He attended the dress rehearsal. Not only that, but he finagled his way into the pre-pre-performance the day before. And this
3: is what I saw. A full-fledged routine, comedy routine by George Carlin. A full-fledged comedy routine by Billy Crystal. Music by Janice, Ian, and Billy Preston. And comedy by the Not Ready for Primetime Players, including John and Gilda and everybody else. So wouldn't you want to come back? Of course you did.
13: So I did. And he came back again. And again. And more and more people came. And in 1976, the standby line was born. People waited inside back then. And the rules and hierarchies just kind of developed. It was like Lord of the Line. And Lewis remembers the day in 1982 that the conch shell was handed to him.
3: Uh, in fact, up until 1982, I was shy. I couldn't talk to people like this. I just couldn't. And one of the, one of the reasons why I got out of it was because of somebody in this line asked me to watch the line for them the following week, because they couldn't be here. Lou, you're here every week? Why don't you watch the line? It's like, huh? And and it means a lot to me that I was I'm able to give out the information that I
13: had bottled up inside me. He'll tell people how the ticketing process works or just joke around with them.
3: We told people one time we were nudist on strike.
13: But he can be harsh when he feels he needs to be. Around 7.30 at night the rain is gone and the sidewalk starts to dry. A few of the other regulars show up with sleeping bags. They're in their teens and early twenties and Lewis says he has to keep an eye on them. He says more than once he's caught a couple of these kids celebrity trawling on the 50th Street side of the building, which is another no-no. A couple more people come while Lewis is on a scheduled bathroom break. When he gets back, he tries to sort out who arrived when.
3: Where are you? Behind Arlene or in front of Arlene? In front, does she know that?
8: Everybody here knows. Let her know. She trusts us. She trusts all of us.
3: Otherwise, she'll think you're jumping. That's not good. I'm watching him like a hawk. Just let her know. Because what is she up to now? Or what is he up to now?
13: You see? And then the minute they do something, whack, you got it. I ask a couple of these kids what they think of Lewis. We hate him, one says. She thinks he's mean. But she likes how he keeps people from cutting in line. Still, some standby goers just wish Lewis would disappear. There have been two petitions seeking to ban him from standby. One that he told me about, and one that I told him about. The one I found had no name attached, but it accused Lewis of harassing people and reporting them falsely. He says whoever created it is probably just mad because they got caught doing something wrong. He knows who wrote the other petition.
3: And I knew exactly what was gonna to happen to it. It wound up in file 13.
13: And what's file 13? The
3: garbage can. You know what happened to the person that dotted it? She got banned,
13: I think. Because she wouldn't leave Jimmy Fallon alone, he says. And while Lewis has met every cast member, except Lorraine Newman for some reason, he says he doesn't ever obsess over them. He just treats them like people, friendly acquaintances who happen to be on late-night TV.
8: Hey, you got glasses?
13: A few hours later, Bill Hader, the guy who imitates Al Pacino on the show, comes out to spend time with the kids. He might be the friendliest guy in the cast.
8: I think my parents have a picture with them and Lewis. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I took a picture of my parents with Lewis.
13: It's interesting because he was saying
8: like he, he thinks of y'all as
13: people, and yeah. that must be really refreshing. Oh, as opposed totally. To, like, yeah.
8: Fawned over. No,
13: yeah, it doesn't. There's
10: no fawning at all, at all. No fawning at all. <laughs> yeah,
8: he's very much like I, I didn't really like that last week. You know what I mean? <laughs> He'll say that like I, I thought that was really bad. I, I didn't like that at all. So uh, yeah, he's a good guy though.
13: Uh, yes, you, more,
3: uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, we'll, uh, we have a little broken glass on the sidewalk. Lewis has the, uh, NBC
13: the security the, programmed uh, into his cell phone. Rock. Lewis is mentioned on, on the, the studio tours. He's like an honorary uncle. Can and about number 17 number? years ago, SNL told Lewis he could come to the show anytime he wanted. At first, they asked him to do standby anyway, just in case they didn't have a ticket for him at the desk. But then they told him, and Jamie, to just walk right in. Lewis doesn't have to sit out all night. He doesn't have to enforce the rules. He doesn't have to do standby. He does it because he wants to, and because he feels obliged.
3: In a way, I feel that they want me here.
13: NBC does.
3: Yeah. I I feel that. They don't say it because they probably can't, because I'm not employed by them.
13: This is why some of the other standby goers feel okay about writing petitions against him. They know he's gonna get into the show anyway, and he should get in, they say. But he should also get alive.
3: What? The guy in a blue cap.
13: At around midnight, Lewis rolls his walker over to one of the few regulars he depends on to help him maintain order in the line. He asks her if she knows anything about the big guy in the blue cap who's standing 10 people back from the front.
2: Yeah, they apparently said that he wasn't here.
13: Now we got somebody in the line now that jumped the line.
2: Lewis is going to lay down the law.
13: Lewis approaches the guy, asks him how long he's been there. The guy says he and his girlfriend had someone hold a spot for them while they drove up from Maryland. So you replaced one with two, Lewis says? You can't do that. You can't do that. You really can't do that.
3: Now, you have a choice right now to go to the back of the line and stay back there. One can stay here because they had fun. Okay? That's disgusting. No, it's not disgusting. It's you disgusting, wouldn't mind I you came here from Maryland, man. I don't care whether you come yeah, from you Maryland or from Hawaii. Street. It doesn't matter. I see. I see how you do it. Ready?
13: My stomach is so dead. tense at this point so, that I, I think I'm it's going to snap.
3: But, but you're, but you're, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you are switching yeah. one person for two people. No, is, but
13: Lewis says fights one like one this, one one this one person person don't bother him. him. He's heard it all before, especially this part.
10: And this is what you do every weekend. Well, we're watching.
3: We're watching the people.
10: Don't do that.
13: This is what you've done with your life. Congratulations, man. There you go. Later on, they come to a compromise. The girlfriend says she'll move back a few spots. At this point, I don't know what time it is. The line's a long snake, its head asleep on the sidewalk, its tail boiling with energy. Everything about me aches. I start to think that going to Saturday Night Live requires Friday night death. And Lewis is subdued, but he's still up, still talking. He tells me about a short video that the cast made for him and his wife as a wedding present. Lorne Michaels appears at the end of it and says, Lewis, Jamie, congratulations. If
3: that's the way they
13: feel about me, to do something like that,
3: then hell, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to repay them for what they've done for me over the past 32 years.
13: Do I have a life? Do I? Yes, in a few hours, the woman with the tickets will come. She'll be infuriatingly clean and well rested. Louis won't know her, but she'll know him, and she'll ask if everybody's behaving. Louis will say,
3: "For the most part, we're behaving here. I think we're, okay. I think we're pretty good."
13: And she'll listen to him, just like always, and then she'll hand out more than a hundred tickets, and less than half of this line will actually get into the show.
9: Two
0: Saturday Night Klein was produced by Sean Cole for Weekend America. And speaking of big shows, we want to tell you about some really special shows happening right here in Chicago this very weekend. I've got Third Coast Artistic Director Miss Julie Shapiro here to help me tell you about a couple of very special events.
7: Jules? Hey, Gwen, you're right. This is an incredible weekend for the Third Coast, maybe the biggest of the whole year. First of all, on Friday, this Friday the 29th, the Books are playing at the Vic Theater. Now, we've been running a collaboration with the Books all year, and it's culminating this weekend with our conference where they're coming to help us present the short docs, and they're also playing in Chicago that night at the Vic Theater. And they are so awesome. You could, you, you must come down and see them. The Books uh, write beautiful songs and then embed them with... Thousands of samples that they find all over the place in attics and thrift stores. How uh, people probably send them things. So the songs are very musical, but then they tell these other stories through these random samples that you find. And inevitably, you start creating your own story about where these samples come from. But when you go to their live shows and you see the videos projected and you start uh, seeing the puzzle come together where some of these things come from, it's amazing. Oh, it sounds so cool. For example, I'll never forget the first time I saw the video for their song, Take Time. Uh, It's off a very early record of theirs. uh, I remember that too. And I had an exact idea in my head about where a certain sample came from. So I would like to know what you think the source for this sample is, in fact. All right, let's hear it. Listen for the laughter in this excerpt from the song, Take Time, which was off an earlier record of theirs.
8: (laughs) (laughs) All
7: right, Gwen, where do you think that laughter comes from? Okay, I have only
0: one guess. Okay, because it's so breathy, it reminds me of I Love to Laugh from Mary Poppins. But I didn't hear any music behind it but, uh, that, that wasn't made by the books. But that's what it reminds me of.
7: Well, I would say you're close to make you feel better, but not oh, really. So what's shoot. happening in that clip and what you do, what happens is at the concert, you're watching the video behind them and you see where this comes from. It's not Mary Poppins? No, it's a group of African women standing around in a village sort of washing clothes and filling buckets and speaking rather saltily about their boyfriends, actually, and then laughing. And for me, the contrast of what my idea of this was, I had a picture of some guys sort of standing around in a gym or on a field (laughs) and then seeing the African women. It was revelatory. All of this is to say that the books are an incredible experience live. If you like their recordings, you're going to love them even more seeing them live. If you've never heard of them, this is a great introduction to an incredible band that we've had a blast collaborating with all year. Uh, So again, that's Friday night at the Vic Theater. But wait. That's not all. Right, you could really have a Third Coast complete weekend if you choose. On Saturday night, the most exciting night of our whole year, we're going to celebrate the winners of the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Now, we have announced on our website who's won the awards, but we haven't revealed who's won what. This is all going to happen at a big ceremony Saturday night at the ballroom at the School of the Art Institute, and you are invited to come. Hosted by... Well, we've got some really special hosts this year. It's Radio Labs Jad Abumrad and Robert Krolwitch are gonna be there with a little bit of musical accompaniment from spontaneous songwriter Abraham Leviton from the local band Baby Teeth. So if people wanna come out, where do they get tickets? The best way to get tickets is to go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, and look for the link uh, for the award ceremony. Now these aren't just regular tickets, they're very special tickets, and they will also get you into the pre-ceremony reception, where you may find yourself reaching for an hors d'oeuvre next to your radio hero. Uh, The winners will be at the reception along with some of our special guests from the weekend's festivities. Uh, These tickets will also help go to support the Third Coast Festival and all that we do all year round. So this is a great way to meet your radio heroes, support the Third Coast Festival, hear some amazing radio excerpts from the winning pieces, and celebrate the very best radio of the year with hundreds of producers from all over the world.
0: All right, well, lots of stuff going on. If you didn't catch every detail, just go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.